If you've been a long-time listener to this show, you know that the podcast continues through partnerships with friends in the permaculture community and thanks to the support of listeners like you. With that in mind, this episode starts the Winter to Spring fundraiser, which runs through April 20th, 2019. This campaign is to raise funds for two goals. The first is to return co-host David Bilbrey to the latest iteration of Regen 18 so he can continue his exploration of regenerative business with leaders in the field. The second is to hire a sound engineer to improve the editing and audio mix of the show. Any amount will help, so give anything you can. Donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail, the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. In this episode, Kirsten Lee Nielsen, author of So You Want to Be a Modern Homesteader, joins me to share her journey in becoming such a homesteader and the advice she has for anyone interested in pursuing a similar path. Residing in Maine, I like her story because of how she and her partner had this dream and began on the land they were on, continuing to develop their skills in a space that was definitely not a farm. They spent their time seeking out the right piece of property for their goals. Through our chat together, Kirsten shares what and why she and her husband focused on when moving to the land, that she earns an income off the farm, and what they are developing to earn one on it, the value of a partner who shares a similar idea of the future, the relationship we have with our animals, including what develops from bottle feeding a baby goat, when your geese imprint upon you, and having a guardian dog as part of your family. Engaging your local community, while also leveraging social media to stay connected, learn new skills, and promote your farm and farm business. As you can hear, we get into quite a bit in our time together, which also reminded me of how technology is not always the most reliable at the end of a rural lane. You'll hear a few places where we have less than perfect audio, but those are minor compared to the wealth of information Kirsten shares with us in this conversation. Enjoy the interview, and I'll join you again after. Then, Kirsten, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to become a homesteader? Yeah, so I did grow up in Maine, but I was living in a a more suburban area just outside of a a town called Bath, which is right sort of on the, the main drag. And my husband and I sort of started with a garden then we got a couple chickens and then we added geese and it was always, you know, we always were sort of looking to grow more of our own food, but it was a organic process in how it, it grew. But when we got the geese, they started, the property that we had was about an acre and they started wandering into the neighbor's yards and looking out of their, their enclosure and we started realizing that we needed more property. Um, and we were mostly talking about goats and we were talking about growing uh, more commercial crops and things like that. So the fact that we needed more land was kind of a final push. And we started looking and we looked off and on for a couple of years. But when we found this uh, this property that we have now, we knew that it was the uh, the place that we, we wanted to be at. We have 93 acres up in Liberty, Maine, and it was a farmhouse that had been in the same family for 200 years. But as that family had sort of, you know, gone on to other things and, and gotten smaller, it had ended up being abandoned for about the past 20 years. So while it had been a working farm for a very long time and it had, you know, the barn and the fields, those fields were very overgrown and everything was in a, a bit of disrepair. 
which helped it be within our budget and also, you know, gave us a place to start. And though you developed some of those skills in your garden and the property that you started with, were you homesteading for a long period of time or did you come from a different background, like technically or professionally, that eventually got you to this place where you wanted to develop and have these skills? Yeah, I think that homesteading or being more self-sufficient, those types of skills have always had some sort of a place in my life, but I never really realized I'd be utilizing them all as as much as I am. When I was growing up, both my parents, you know, we certainly had an extensive vegetable garden and my parents took that pretty seriously. My parents had actually both moved to Maine as part of the Back to the Land movement. And before I was born, actually, when they were married to other people, they were very much fully into the homesteading movement. By the time I came along, they were less involved in that, but they were still, you know, with the with the gardens and we had horses and chickens. So I grew up with some basic skills. I was probably not actually very helpful at all in the garden, but it was I was around it, so I, I understood. And like my husband came from a little bit more of the corporate world, but he also grew up attending um like uh, wilderness summer camp. So we both had a lot of, you know, experience with working with our hands, experience providing for ourselves and, and understanding why that kind of thing is important. But I don't think either of us were planning to dive all into it quite to the extent that we, we ended up doing. When we did move here, uh, the property, like I said, it had been abandoned for a long time. So there was no electricity, no running water. For the first couple of years, we we ended up hooking up electricity and water to the barn for the animals. And because we knew we'd want a place to process, we had goats, we wanted a place to process milk. So we put a little kitchen in there too. So we were cooking on a hot plate in the barn with a sink. We had an outdoor shower, which was not particularly effective during the, uh, the winter time. And we used a bucket as a composting toilet. So it was a little bit more of a completely like directly off the grid uh, jump than I think we sort of thought we were going to do, but we managed to, to transfer pretty quickly. I imagine with those kinds of constraints on you that you would kind of have to adapt rather quickly in order to make this move and be productive so that you would want to continue down this path. Yeah. And I know, I know like one person said you can get used to anything and I think that's partially true, but I also found that a little dismissive of I, I did actually really enjoy it. And I mean, we have indoor plumbing now. We spent most of the past summer renovating the house. So after three years of being here, we basically decided it was time to, to focus on our own creature comforts instead of the animals for a little while. But we've always been people, and I do talk in the book about like making a plan and breaking things down and sort of like a, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. And for us, that was a big part of being able to you know, dive in like that was we knew our end goals. And we also knew that things would be that certain things at least would be temporary. So when it came to like the outdoor shower, we were like, well, we'll have a shower inside in a couple of years. But right now we're focusing on the animals or we're focusing on the field. So it, it helped us sort of make those decisions for us, like mentally, you know, be prepared for, for that shift. <laughs> So is that kind of planning, that five-year plan and 10-year plan, the kinds of things that you would recommend to someone who's looking at making this transition to buy land and to begin working it, that you would kind of outline what it is that you're looking for property and give yourself a timeline for how long it might take to raise 
the money necessary to at least make a down payment to gather the skills you would need while you're there? Or is it kind of also allowing for the ability to jump if you find something quicker or just need to make that move sooner? The ability to jump is definitely important if things change or or opportunities arise. Like I said, we looked for a long time kind of not super seriously. We were, you know, started driving around, but it was it was a little bit of a dream. And then the right place came up and we, you know, just sort of made it happen. But overall, having a five-year plan and just sort of writing down your, your goals. And we live here in Maine, of course, it's very seasonal. So there's like a, a big rush during summertime. And then there's a bit more of, you know, sitting back and planning during the winter time. And we tend to divide like every summer into, well, this is the summer that we're going to do the house, and this is the summer that we're going to focus on the goats and things like that. Dividing things up, it makes it a little bit more manageable. And I think it's also important to have a long-term plan because it is expensive to get involved in, in homesteading. There's a lot of initial investment and it's incredibly time-consuming once you start adding the animals in the gardens and the more things that you want to make for yourself, the more time you're going to be spending. It can certainly get frustrating and feel overwhelming and feel like you're never going to get it all done if you feel like you need to do it all at once. And I think some sometimes when folks start out in home setting, it's like you see people uh, who really are doing everything themselves and they're living totally off the grid and, you know, they, they make their own clothes and they milk their own goats and, and so on and so forth. And you're like, well, I want to be there, but to get there, it's, it's a long journey. It's a long journey monetarily and time-wise and just in terms of the skills, you've got to gather them and learn them. So having a long-term plan makes you realize that you are on that path, even if you may not be doing all those things at once right away. You can see day to day that you're at least moving towards those goals. Exactly. With the time consumption and monetary expense of making this change, especially if you're not fully immersed in this background, did you and your husband continue to work off of the homestead or are you both still working off the homestead during this time period? Yeah, so I um, continued to work full-time off of the homestead until this past summer. I switched to being part-time, but I do still have an an off-homestead job. And I suppose you could say writing the book is an additional off-homestead job that I had as well. I was fortunate that my husband was able to be full-time on the farm. And without that, we certainly couldn't have made as much progress as we have. It has definitely you know, a full-time, a full-time job. Most people that I know who certainly do anything like grow any produce then to sell, do any sort of like more commercial farming, and also many of the homesteaders that I know, at least one member of the family does have an off-homestead job. And I think that that it's usually important, especially if you're starting. Of course, the long-term goal is to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, and to, you know, not necessarily need to participate in, you know, going to the grocery store and spending money. But short-term, there are a lot of investments to get get started, um, and having that extra income is is usually very important. But at the same time, having the time to keep up with everything and get everything started so that you you know, can be producing more for yourself 
is is also a huge thing. So the balance of one person full time on the farm and one person full time off is pretty common, and I think works works pretty well for for a lot of people. But it's not always realistic. Sometimes both of you are, are quite busy with, with full-time jobs, and some people are fortunate that they get to spend all their time on the homestead. It's that spectrum that we find ourselves on, though very often it does involve at least one person working off of the farm. As you move towards self-sufficiency, and you know, you've gone to a point now where you're part-time from your day job and your husband has been full-time on the farm, what are you doing in Maine in order to earn an income from your homestead? Yes. So, as I said, the the book is kind of an additional off-farm job, and that has been very helpful um, in terms of me going part-time as well, is to have that sort of other avenue that is a little more self-driven than a traditional job, but is still technically, you know, it's not exactly farming. (laughs) It's writing about farming. So there is that. Our longer-term goals for the property here, we want to do more in the way of, of fruits and berries as, you know, for wine or medicinal purposes. We've also talked about we have some elderberries that we're growing for medicinal purposes. So that's a long-term goal here of investing more in especially things that are native to Maine and we know will we'll thrive here. But we also, we have the goats and we have geese as well, and both of those are well, they're probably not money makers at this point, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But the goats we do have for for milk and cheese, and we also are are selling kids when we have kids, and the geese as well. We sell some geese, and I try to sell goose eggs. So those are our livestock, our livestock money makers at some point, I hope. And then uh, our vegetable garden, which I do grow more than we can eat, so I try to sell you know a little bit farm stand wise that way. And then simply being able to reduce my own grocery bill, which means that I don't need to make as much income. And I like with what you said there about growing fruits and then also considering medicinal plants, because then that looks at secondary and tertiary products, which very often can have a better return for the farm than just selling the fresh fruit or the vegetables or the herbs. Yes. And doing uh, doing more with Definitely, like, making things like wine or mead or even just jam, you know, making different products with those berries is, it's probably more beneficial monetarily, and it's also just what really intrigues us. So we're definitely interested in getting more involved in that. When it came to finding your property, you have this 200-year-old farmhouse that you're working on renovating. You have 93 acres. Was this property the kind of ideal that you were looking for, or did you have particular goals when it came to what you wanted on the land when you were searching? Yeah, we definitely had some goals, although this was also a little bit different than what we were looking for. It was kind of a balance. The main thing when we came to look at this property was the structural soundness of the barn and also the house. So while both needed Particularly, the house needed very extensive, basically completely redone on the inside. But the, uh, you know, the foundation and the walls were good. And in the barn, we needed to renovate that just to make it suitable for our animals. Again, the foundation was in good shape. So building either of these buildings from the ground up would have cost, you know, much, much more than, than we could have afforded. So the structural integrity of the buildings was very important. 
especially since we knew we already had the geese and we knew that we'd already committed to getting goats the coming spring. So having something that goats could all move into quickly was important. We also knew that we wanted to do something long-term with things like berries and orchards. We were looking more particularly at elderberries at that time, which are still part of our plan, but we have a few more aspects of it now. But our fields here were packed and elderberries do like it wet. So that was a plus for sure. But the other thing that really played into both our desire to move and what we were looking for in a property, uh, while it's not necessarily a homesteading asset, it also kind of is with just the privacy of it. We are technically on a public road, but we sat here one day all afternoon when we were still looking at the uh, the property, just trying to see like how many cars went by and nobody did. And that was huge for us, just finding a place that we could you know, do our own thing. Where we were living before, we had houses on three sides and it, it was a bit like living in a fishbowl. So knowing that we would have a place where we could keep the animals that we wanted and not have their, their noise bother anybody and just sort of be able to really, you know, fully relax and do our own thing. The privacy of the property was, was a huge selling point. You were able to create privacy with space rather than building a higher fence. Exactly. Yes. And thinking of fences and infrastructure and the things that we might build, as you say, you had to renovate the barn, you were renovating the house. What are the kinds of things that people should think about when they are looking for a property that would suit what their needs might be, whether for structures or land itself. As you say, some of the space was wetter, which works well for the elderberries. And then I'm also wondering, what tools and equipment have you had to bring in to create this space in a way that is useful and meaningful to you? Are you using a lot of hand tools or are you, or are you using you know, tractors or walk-behinds? In terms of the property and looking for something that suited us, The fields being wet was good for elderberries, but it's also, and if you have a plan of like, I really want to get this type of animal or I really want to grow this, you know, this crop or something specific, it's always good to look for a property that suits that. But at the same time, homesteading, part of it is, you know, often going back to smaller scale farming and you don't need a a big field to grow, you know, one monocrop. So a lot of the times you can make do with properties that might not seem ideal to a lot of farmers who are looking at them, but like goats, for example, love just rocky terrain and they'll eat underbrush. So that doesn't sound like a great property, but you can actually keep goats very effectively. So it's good to keep and, you know, it's good to look for what you need if you have a goal in mind, but it's also good to keep an open mind that you can still homestead on what might not seem like uh, the ideal place. In terms of equipment that we uh, when moving here, one of the big selling points as well was the exact state of the uh, the field because we, you know, we wanted to put gardens in, we wanted to put orchards in. The fields were definitely overgrown, but they were overgrown to a point that we could still bring them back using. We already owned an old 1949 Ford tractor, and my husband has a couple chainsaws that he already owned as well, so. We you know, didn't have to go out and buy new equipment. We didn't have the nicest equipment, but we could do it by hand with basically a chainsaw and a tractor and the two of us and bring the fields back to you know, openness. We also, this coming year, there was a, a one area of our property which had been logged, and so that has like big stumps that we can't take out ourselves. We're actually getting pigs in the spring to help clear out the stumpage there. So 
I haven't had that personal experience yet, but I have heard that they are extremely effective at that. And that's a nice, you know, way to not have to bring in heavy equipment and utilize the animals. And then we may end up eating them. We're still debating exactly the plant because we have a lot of acreage, so we may keep them for a while so that we don't have to start over. But using animals in ways that can help you improve your property is huge. Part of the reason we started out with goats was we have a lot of stone walls and they're overgrown as well, but not as badly as the fields were. So if we put the goats on a section for a couple of days, they can eat down the underbrush and, and bring those back. So pigs, goats, uh, even chickens in a, in a small area can also help you bring back to workable land instead of overgrown land. Really focusing on that biology over technology wherever you can. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, the moving animals like our uh, geese as well, like they don't necessarily help improve the land, although they do make the grass greener with their droppings. But we use them as like alarm bells and guardians for our chickens. Naturally, they are, well, I don't want to say naturally they're aggressive because I think that's a negative stereotype about geese, but they are certainly loud and they can seem aggressive. So, Again, a way in which we're utilizing the animals, just you know, doing what they do naturally, and it helps us as well. Using the geese for their assertive nature, do you also have a farm dog? Yes, we do. We've got a, a livestock guardian dog named Stanley. He's uh, he's a Marema sheepdog, and we got him. To be honest, we probably don't need a livestock guardian dog now that we have have been here a while and we understand a little bit more the predator load of this space. I think it was very smart of the original farmers here that they built the house and barn and therefore sort of the center of the livestock activity in the middle of the four open fields. So we actually see very few large predators. You know, we'll see like weasels or, or rats, but very few larger predators willing to cross those fields to bother our livestock. But we do have Stanley, and he is a fantastic deterrent. And well, he may not be as necessary as we thought he would be when we got him. He's, you know, he's a staple of the farm, and he's a he's a great friend to us and the goats. So wouldn't wouldn't don't regret that choice. <laughs> Whether or not he's needed so much as a guardian these days, he's still a part of the family. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> in bringing the animals in, what choices did you go through to decide to do geese and goats initially? Geese was pretty entirely by chance. We were getting some chickens, and my husband's son asked if we might get a couple geese, and I'm not entirely sure what inspired him to ask that, but I had known geese growing up. My best friend had geese, and so, you know, I had some fond memories of them. So we ordered a couple, and when we got them, they imprinted on us, which is something that geese and ducks will do, but chickens certainly don't. So they became like they saw us as their parents and they follow us around. And, and it was very adorable, so we became very fond of them. And you know, the next year we got a couple more. And as we started growing our flock, basically just because we enjoyed their company, I started researching more and learning more about the various ways that they can be utilized as, as well. So, you know, they serve a purpose. And certainly the aspect of being, you know, guards and alarms is huge for us. They do also lay eggs. They're seasonal egg layers, but from about this time of year through till May or June, you'll get these gigantic eggs that are equivalent to about three chicken eggs. And they're perfect for baking and that kind of thing. So we, we use their eggs. They also are good for weeding, not so much in the garden because they will, you know, eat 
lettuce and things like that. But in something like a vineyard or an orchard, geese can keep the pathways clear because they're strict vegetarians, so they love eating any grass they come across. I definitely had always wanted goats, but when we were looking at this property, also the the stone walls and knowing that goats are sort of voracious eaters of stones that other animals will eat was kind of what, what pushed us over the edge of like, yes, let's go ahead and get goats. And sort of similar to pigs, pigs have also been part of the conversation for a long time. But once we had, you know, this area that needed the stumps cleared out, it was like, all right, let's make the move on them. So we talk about a lot of different animals and we really enjoy keeping animals. But when something comes up that's like, oh, we can use them for that, that's often the, you know, the catalyst for, for moving forward and, and adding them to the farm. What are some of the joys and also difficulties in raising animals on the homestead? There's certainly certainly some difficulties and, you know, you open yourself up to heartbreak for sure in keeping animals in a way that can be, you know, can be very intense and can be very devastating if if something doesn't go right, if an animal gets sick. But absolutely, you know, there's the joys are exactly the same. They're more intense as well. And there's something very special about animals that really know you and know that you're the person that's feeding them and hopefully have fondness for you beyond that. It may just be the food, but that connection with an animal. We raised a, a bottle baby goat a couple of years ago, and I know that he still recognizes me and runs over to me specifically because he knows, like, you know, I don't have anything special for him anymore, but he knows that I raised him. So there is a a certain connection with animals that is is very special to me. And it's also just entertaining to watch them. Pretty much every animal that we've ever kept or, or added here, we're just amazed by the you know complex social structure that they might have within the, the herd or the flock. And, you know, the way that they just communicate with each other, it's so clear how they're you know, they're not speaking, but it's always very clear what they're saying to each other or even to us. So there's a lot of, of joy in that and, you know, day-to-day entertainment. And at the end of the day, I think that that is one of the most important parts of keeping animals is just that joy that they, they bring us and the fact that, you know, somebody puts a smile on my face every day. And the ideals of homesteading of like being more self-reliant and doing all this ourselves, you know, they're fantastic ideals, but some days they feel unachievable or just overwhelming. And having the animals, you know, is the, that little just sort of, you know, even if they're not serving a direct purpose, the fact that they get me happy to be here again, and then everything else seems a little more doable and a little more worth doing. It paints a delightful picture for those who are interested in animals and bringing them in. If you're someone who likes having, you know, a cat or a dog or pets, the way that we can extend that out into our homestead and have those same relationships. Yes, and I think that's important. You know, it may not be animals for everyone, or, you know, it may certainly not be goats or geese for everyone, but having that, you know, thing about doing this lifestyle that is a little bit beyond the ideal, that is, well, I just really love this. You know, it does keep you going when it seems overwhelming, and, you know, that might be cooking or you know, I do love gardening in the summer. Unfortunately, I'm not able to do it as much at this time of year. But having those things that just make you smile about this, I think that makes a difference between success and failure a lot of the time. And having things that you care about and connection is one of the things that I found really stood out about your book is that you spend about half of it 
setting us up for what we need when looking for property, when considering what our actual needs are versus our wants, how we can earn an income and things like that. But then the second half of your book is all about creating community, the use of technology to stay connected, how to raise children on a homestead. And so I was wondering if you could talk with us a bit about that and why you included so much of that in your book. Community is uh, is certainly very important, and it's something that acts a little differently, I guess, than I thought it would. You know, now that I live out here, we moved out here, like I said, uh, largely for privacy. So it's interesting that community is still incredibly important. You know, and privacy is still absolutely, you know, we're, we're very happy to be in, in a spot like this. But at the same time, community is crucial partially with not way out in the country just for, you know, security reasons, having you know, good terms with your neighbors and having people you can call in an emergency who might be closer than emergency services. Of course, that has a practical aspect to it. But community, I think, is particularly uh, valuable just as uh, a learning tool when you're, you know, you're trying all these new things and sometimes you don't really know what you're doing and having people that you can ask about that, whether they're, you know, your neighbors. We have found our neighbors invaluable in terms of most of them have spent their entire lives here and remember when this was still being farmed or certainly stories of when it was still being farmed. And they may have, you know, tips and knowledge about the land that, you know, we couldn't get anywhere else, or more specifically in terms of how to keep pigs or how to keep goats or, or anything like that, having people who we can ask for their help and suggestions is very important so that we don't, you know, reading books is absolutely incredibly valuable as well, but sometimes you find yourself in a pinch <laughs> and you can't find the, the answer that you need. So the more of the support system you can build, the the better. And there's also the aspect of having people who, you know, it doesn't have to be knowledge per se, but just having people who've had similar life experiences with homesteading and farming and being able to commiserate with them, you know, sometimes that's important as well. <laughs> and then you had mentioned your husband's son. Is he active on the homestead with you and being educated there, or is he also spending time on and off the farm? So my husband actually has three kids, and... One of them is, is still in high school um, about an hour away. The other two are now one of them. One of them works full time off the farm, although he has certainly helped out here once in a while. The, uh, the other one is actually going to college at a college only about 20 minutes away, which is incredibly convenient. And he was the one who was here all summer helping us build the house as well. So he's been the most directly involved in the the aspects of the firm, and it certainly, I think, has, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak for him, but I think it has inspired him in some ways. It's good to show a direction that your your life can go that isn't just, you know, get a job and start a family, but is like working, you know, doing, doing more for yourself. And it's also incredibly valuable for us because as he learns more skills in terms of, of running this homestead, you know, maybe we can take a break for even just one, you know, one afternoon. <laughs> and have someone that we can trust to take care of the animals. So that's, you know, that's a valuable part of that. And that's a way to comfortably integrate those ideas of both family and community for those who are interested in this way of living. Yes. And I think that also, I said earlier in the interview, I was 
raised not, I wouldn't quite call it on a homestead, but um, I was homeschooled and we, you know, had a garden as part of our lives. And, you know, teaching people, you know, as, as young kids, those connections, like I said, I wasn't hugely involved in the garden. I certainly was not hugely involved in the kitchen, but I was around that uh, lifestyle. And I think it's quite clear that it's formed who I am today in what I hope is a positive way. So just exposing kids to you know, to our connection to the land and where our food comes from is is always incredibly important. And the last question that I have about your book proper is that you dedicate an entire chapter to social media. And I was wondering why you chose to include that in the book and both the importance and detriment that you might see in that as an outlet for people who are on the farm. Yeah, well, in terms of including it in the book, I think it's one of the things that really makes someone a modern homesteader, I guess. You know, one of the things that's completely different from anything that might have been around when, like, the Nearings were doing this or, you know, really any time up until now, there hasn't been anything like Instagram or Facebook. So it's something unique to modern homestead life. And it has, you know, its benefits and its drawbacks. In terms of benefits, social media certainly provides you with more of those connections and more community than you could find from from just your neighbors and everything about community that goes with that of, you know, having resources for for questions and instant connection to people who, who might have, you know, answers, people who you can commiserate with about problems, so on and so forth. You know, it, it, it offers all of that. And it also potentially can be, you know, a marketing tool if you do, you know, sell things from your homestead. I don't know how effective it necessarily is at local produce, but if you do sell non-perishable goods that you sell like through an Etsy shop or something like that, a lot of people definitely use Instagram and Facebook to, you know, drum up interest in, in homestead goods. And I think it's fantastic for that. But it's also very time consuming. And especially if, you know, if you're going to make a success at it, in theory, there's like a whole algorithm that you have to stick to. And, you know, you have to make sure your pictures are pretty and your captions are good and you have to respond to all the comments and and all this stuff. And it it sort of all rolls together and ends up taking, you know, a half an hour or an hour or two hours out of your day. And the more like successful you are, the more time it takes. So, there's definitely a huge drawback, especially, I, I mean, that's a, a practical drawback for anyone's lifestyle, but especially if you are homesteading and there's, you know, a lifestyle choice that in theory has you out doing stuff all day, every day, and then you also have to keep up with social media. So I think it's absolutely useful, but setting yourself time limits and just being careful that it doesn't overwhelm the reason that you're here to begin with is critical. There's also an element with social media of seeing, I know people kind of call it like the perfect little squares of people's ideal lives and people only posting good stuff. And sometimes I think like, you know, that's a natural tendency of people is to to share the best of what's happening. But social media can certainly exacerbate that comparing yourself to others and feeling like, you know, maybe you you aren't doing as much as, as the next person. So... You know, I don't have a have a final answer of like how to use social media in a way that doesn't bring you down but does get you the exposure that you're looking for. But I think it's very important to consider both sides of that and to 
always be able to take a step back, especially if you think it's taking away from, you know, why you're doing this to begin with, or if it's taking up an hour that you could have been improving your land, things like that. It's important not to let it overwhelm you and to step back when it starts to. Well, thank you for that. It's one of the things for me, having run the show for a number of years, that interaction with social media, deciding how exactly that's going to happen for me, because of that, how easy it is to start scrolling and see what your friends are doing, what they have going on. Right. And then I realize it's a half an hour, 45 minutes later, and I need to get back to my editing. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it just, it it's so easy to get to get totally drowned in it. And the other thing with social media that you have to be careful of is, you know, anybody can present themselves as an expert on social media as well. So if, you know, you're following someone, I, I think it's very valuable for learning and you can connect with people who have experiences that, that you don't have. But at the same time, it's important to kind of fact check those experiences and, you know, go to somebody's actual website and don't just read the caption on the one picture that you like and be like, this person knows everything about this, but, but do a little fact checking and, and background checking as, as well. Because that's, you know, that's another area <laughs> that it can be a little bit deceiving sometimes. And I've certainly had some conversations with folks over the years of the show about, you know, finding people's credentials and getting to know who they are and making a decision before we, we follow them or take what they have to say as an expert opinion. But it is, it, it can be very overwhelming. Right, absolutely. And <laughs> there's definitely, definitely a lot of pros and cons, but the more, I guess, analytical you can be about your, your use of it and you know, do the fact checking, watch your time, and uh, hopefully it can be useful for you. <laughs> like everything else, having a plan, having a purpose, and putting it into design for ourselves. Absolutely, yes. Well, I really do enjoy your book. It's a great way, I think, for anyone who has these kinds of questions to dive in before looking at some of the bigger and deeper resources. I don't want to say that it's a slim volume because I feel that that doesn't give a good impression of how much is really there, but it is a book that someone can pick up and, you know, share a copy with a friend or family member who they're interested in this with and be able to read through it in a couple of days and really start to make some good decisions about how to do this. I know that having gone down this road with my parenting partner over the years as we were looking for land and considering what we were going to do next and everything while we were still married, that it was so overwhelming even just five or six years ago, to find good information about how to take these next steps. And I love your work and so many of the others that are coming out that really help to guide people on this process and provide them with a distinct understanding of this particular aspect that they might be looking towards and that you give us a nice overview of what it means to make this transition to homesteading. So I really, I thank you for writing the book. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much. You know, it is meant to be something of a primer, if you will. You know, it doesn't delve hugely deep into any one aspect, but I do like the idea. And certainly the goal of the book is if you're thinking about this, it can help you realize if it really is what's for you or not, I hope. And one of the things that I'd like to mention for listeners is that at the end of every chapter, you list additional resources for people who want to explore these ideas more and also ask a series of questions that they can answer before they decide to make this transition. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's certainly, uh, I'd take advantage of that. And uh, all of those like little further reading bits there are, you know, I've read, <laughs> I've read all those. And I think, you know, if you're going to delve more into it, absolutely go check out those books. 
And as I always like to do before I end an interview, even with everything that you've shared with us about your story and the suggestions for people who are interested in either expanding the homestead that they're currently on or making this move, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I certainly would stick to what I said at the beginning of, you know, making a plan and and setting goals being the the most important part and, you know, setting those long-term plans, but, you know, sticking to also the small improvements that you can make every year and not getting overwhelmed by it and not feeling like if you aren't doing everything that you're not doing enough, even doing a a small, like, you know, growing a couple tomatoes, that's still a, a good first step. And in the introduction of the book, I talk about, you know, how I define a homesteader. And in that introduction, I say it's someone who chooses to live self-reliantly. And I do believe in that definition. And I do believe that any steps that you can take to be more self-reliant, no matter how small, are, are hugely important. So do what you can. And hopefully this lifestyle inspires you and you want to go further. But um, even the smallest steps are, are absolutely important. Well, thank you, Kirsten, for that and everything else you shared with us and for joining me today. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for having me. And that was Kirsten Lee Nielsen. You can read her blog and learn more about her journey at HostileValleyLiving.com, and you'll find her books at NewSociety.com. In cooperation with New Society Publishers, I'm giving away a copy of her book to a listener on Patreon. For those of you who support the podcast there, you'll find this in your feed beginning February 18th. Not a Patreon supporter? Go to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast or by following the giveaway link in the show notes. This drawing is open to everyone whether or not you support the show on Patreon. All you need to do is register with Patreon and leave a comment in the post to enter. This giveaway only runs through February 28th, so head over there today. While lauding Kirsten's book during the interview, I mentioned that I like the questions she asks to help you perform a self-assessment and decide whether or not this really is the path you want to pursue, something we don't talk about nearly enough within the permaculture community. Those questions can help you with preparing for rural life, understanding the seasonality of living on a farm, the reality of raising children on the homestead, and more. A few of those questions, as an example from the chapter on skills and resources for rural living, include... What is your plan to keep food fresh or preserved? How will you bathe and get fresh drinking water? How will you keep your animals warm in the winter? As you read each chapter and answer those questions, if you want to learn more and dig deeper, Kirsten also provides a fairly comprehensive list of books for each subject. From the same chapter, some of the books she recommends include The Encyclopedia of Country Living by Carla Emery and Raising Goats Naturally by Deborah Neiman. I'm a fan of Kirsten's suggested reading lists, because many of the books are ones I would personally recommend from my own library, or have been suggested by other guests at one point or another in the past. Overall, if you're called to the land, you can learn a lot from Kirsten, her blog, and her books. Though I missed her at Mother Earth News Fair in Pennsylvania this past year, as I was hanging out with Jeremy Zimmerman at the time talking mead, I look forward to meeting her this September, and sitting through some of her presentations. If you can make it to that or any of the other events she'll be at, seek out the opportunity. If not, read her work, which you'll find linked in the show notes. After listening to this episode, what do you think about making the move to a homestead? Have Kirsten's insights changed your views? Will you need to take some time to build your skills? Let me know. Call 717-827-6266. 
email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or if you still like to seal an envelope and mail a letter, that address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is a conversation with Zev Friedman of Cooperate WNC as we sit down to talk about mutual aid and the scale of cooperation. That's out on February 27th for Patreon supporters and regular release on February 28th. To go with that episode, I'll be offering a giveaway for copies of Peter Kropotkin's Mutual Aid and The Conquest of Bread. Until the next time, consider whether or not a homestead is right for you and your plans while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.